What's up, everybody? It is me, Emmett, your Nuclear Barbarian, and I'm here with your weekly installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, my buddy, Mark Nelson. What is up, Mark? Hey, Emmett. Good to finally be here on the the hottest new nuclear podcast in the world. <laughs> Thanks, man. So you've been on my other podcast, Exhaust, a couple times, I think, but not this one. So I was wondering for, I'm pretty sure most of my listenership here is familiar with you, but for those who aren't, if you could introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Mark Nelson. I'm from Oklahoma. I studied engineering in school and found myself in the weird world of advocacy rather than running nuclear plants. I run a consultancy and an advocacy organization for nuclear energy. So I sort of travel around the world and try to stop nuclear plants from closing and if possible, try to get new ones built. There we go. Well, that's exactly what we're all about here at Nuclear Barbarians. So you've just finished up quite the whirlwind round of travel involving both Europe and Africa. I was wondering if you could sort of tell us what you've seen and what you've been up to. Sure. So I was in Ghana for the African Youth Nuclear Summit. And then I was in Europe for several different pro-nuclear events sandwiched around Glasgow, COP26, the Conference of Parties event, you know, and it was a, it was a very interesting set of experiences to have one after another, let me tell you. What, so, what's, example, uh, what, what stood out? What stood out? The fact that at COP26, there was just like completely divergent worlds all packed into the same exhibition hall. It was insane. There was this sort of panicky, neurotic, guilt-tripping, elitist environmental thing going on. Like talks where you'd get like a young person from some island nation to come tell you how bad you are. And then the countries causing the problem would get up and say how amazing it was to see and how we just really need to stop using energy, that sort of thing. So there was that going on. Then there was this kind of nasty carnival trade show atmosphere where there were giant booths for wind industry lobbyists and like Denmark and Germany those booths were turned over to basically be industry promotional events around like bioenergy stuff and wind industry and solar industry stuff. So that was going on. And then there was a separate world where it was like developing countries having conversations with other developing countries about how they're going to get energy in the future. Mm -hmm. So it, really these three worlds were all there at the same time. It was it was really strange. And, you know, it's this big nerdy conference. So people wearing their little ID badge and everything where you might see governors and heads of state and journalists and celebrities and complete weird random people who like had huge hats and carried stuffed animals that they named <laughs> after different attributes of their weird ideology. Yeah. All of that in the same space wow. combined with really suspect food service and lots of coffee. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing was a crazy, crazy atmosphere. I don't, I don't know if any progress for the climate got done, but I was very glad to see it. And I had so many fascinating conversations with people from around them. Mm -hmm. So because I and a lot of young nuclear people were at this event for the first time, there was sort of an unprecedented presence of nuclear energy at COP26. It helped that it was in being hosted by a country that was powered 
partly by nuclear and embarking on a nuclear construction program. It helped that this event was taking place under the darkening, lengthening shadow of a huge energy crisis Mm -hmm. in the countries that were supposed to be leading. It really helped in terms of clarifying the goals of the climate conference that many heads of state had gathered to try to figure out how to get more fossil fuels for cheaper right before going to the climate conference to say that fossil fuels are on their way out. So <laughs> yeah, I, that was, I, I that was a nice really little, uh, it was a nice little prelude to the cop 26 thing is everybody being like, please OPEC, please. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then they all got their wish on oil, not natural gas, but on oil, when news about the most recent variant COVID scared the oil markets down into a huge drop in oil prices. So Mm -hmm. congratulations to the world leaders at the climate conference. They're getting the larger amount of cheap oil that they wanted. Now that was COP26. For me, it was, it was the filling between two weekends of really intense, beautiful, and difficult activism, first in Amsterdam. And then finally, after that in Berlin, where in Amsterdam, we're trying to get the Dutch, a pivotal state in the balance of power in the EU between pro-nuclear France and anti-nuclear Germany Mm -hmm. to get on the side of nuclear energy. And then in Berlin, a last ditch final attempt, a rally held right in front of the Brandenburg gate, couldn't be a more symbolic and intense location, honestly, with one of the most famous climate scientists in the world begging Germany to reconsider its, at this point, nearly suicidal effort to shut down its nuclear plants over the next few months. Mm-hmm. And all of that for me came after coming from Ghana, where I had the experience of an African nation with a huge amount of pride in their electricity system, one of the best in all of Africa. But the pride in the electricity system was tempered by a sort of, I don't want to say quiet desperation, worry from the last few years of Ghanaian electricity, barely recovering from a very bad period where they were on the edge of losing what made them stand out among many African nations, which was a reliable and reasonably priced electricity service. Mm -hmm. So in Ghana, that's a place that's really hot and they expect to have enough electricity for things like air conditioning, for example, totally for middle-class families. Like it is, I, you know, they have a lot of aspirations. They're about 50% hydro with the largest reservoir in the entire world, man-made. It's on the Volta River and they have about 50% hydro, about 50% fossil fuels. And they are seeing the squeeze happen to all the other African nations that are not as far along as them in electricity. Here's the squeeze. All the rich countries that are building wind and solar, they're doing it by cutting chunks into an already existing, already capitalized, centralized grid. Right. Australia and is able to like, an example of that, right? Those guys just cut into an example coal. of that. One of the yeah. dirtiest grids in the world, but there it is. And adding wind and solar, whatever we may think about that on this show, it's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. If you put your heart and soul into it and you sacrifice other goals, you can build out wind and solar on a grid that already exists and was already built and paid for by other people and by other, other designs by other, you know, in other times, you can cut chunks out of that for wind and solar. It's not clear that you can go all the way. I suspect you won't be able to, but you mm-hmm. can at least start in Africa, if you don't have a big grid already and mm-hmm. you add wind and solar to it, 
you're practically guaranteeing that you're never going to have a centralized electricity service that's enough to industrialize and to, to lift your country out of poverty. And so what do you build? Well, almost every other type of energy has some barrier to getting built now. The natural thing for Africa would be to use the gas and the coal of a developing world that's moving away from it. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, they would have to get coal plants financed. They would have to get gas plants and LNG facilities financed. At the moment, it's not clear that any group in the world is going to do that. Japan was one of the last countries in, the, in recent years still funding coal plants, and they've almost completely pulled away from that now, maybe wow. entirely. So there's a dead end with fossil fuels. Okay, we're the nuclear barbarians. We want to go on to the African continent and see them become... Wakanda based on uranium? Well, at the moment, the big international financing organizations don't finance nuclear. So they're caught in a trap where they're offered some very expensive wind and solar that leaves them in a compromised position with their electricity and no jobs. Yeah, even rich countries are finding that when wind and solar comes calling, you're not being offered any jobs beside casual labor and construction. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not being offered the supply chain. In fact, I've heard recently that Taiwan, a very rich country, really in, in conflict with international wind energy suppliers because Taiwan wants the jobs and the contracts in their own country because that's where the value is. It's not in owning the facilities. It's in building the facilities for others. And right. that's not even working for Taiwan. Is Kenya really going to get like wind turbine manufacturing facilities? If they get wind, I hope they get that. But like it's the two big wind projects they've had so far sure as heck didn't involve that. Here's something that tied a moment that tied these two locations, Ghana and Europe together for me. While marching in the climate march in Amsterdam with a large group of enthusiastic Dutch folks, I saw a paste, a wheat paste uh, job along the climate march that was clearly, you know, a guerrilla effort the day before. And it was signed saying net zero is a land grab. And it showed Africa getting a giant chunk taken out of it mm. in, a, in a cartoon image, a giant chunk taken out of it, I think labeled like net zero or something like that, where the claim is basically that in order for a concentrated rich society to power itself on low density agriculture and low density renewables, it would need to start taking a lot of land in other places. Now mm -hmm. I'm a skeptic of like piping in electricity from the Sahara, but that is one of the proposals that people have talked about taking, you know, and securing land and securing electricity pipelines. If we want to use that for powering life and death infrastructure in Europe, that does sound to me like it's something of a land grab. Just in recent weeks, the natural gas pipeline from the Sahara into Spain has been shut down for political reasons. That's the type of thing that if it's actually life or death, Europe cannot allow its electricity or its gas mm -hmm. to be shut off if it's become dependent on it. So seeing on that climate march, only days after coming from, again, a proud country with one of the best electricity systems in Africa, desperately trying to see how it will get more electricity in the future and not seeing a, in many good options. And then to see that net zero is a land grab in Africa sign, 
you know, not to be all Thomas Friedman, the world is flat, but it felt like a much tighter connection than the climate or the people I was hanging out with would have suggested. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I don't really know why any Western wind manufacturing firm would surrender its domestic operations to Africa when the way to make money is by being the ones who build it. I don't know why Germany would do that. They certainly stand to benefit from selling tons of wind installations to Africa. But this is one of those things, right? When someone says just transition, that's when I reach for my revolver. This is usually what it means. Yeah. And, or, you know, we've said, we've talked about this before. Green jobs are not ones that the people using the phrase green jobs would ever be willing to do. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what it looks like in Europe and what your experience in Africa was. Now we are a little further along into this global energy crunch. What are you seeing in terms of the energy reality on the ground these days? Well, there's still this big quiet that I, what, what was the period at the start of World War II called the phony war, where it was just mm -hmm. everyone was thinking they got scared that there might be a war. Then there was a period where Hitler had been appeased and you were just waiting, right? Mm -hmm. Well, for me, I feel that we're in a quiet period waiting for the barbarians to arrive and slaughter us. In the case of natural gas, we went into the natural gas season with extremely low reservoirs in Europe. Mm -hmm. Then, as if there was no worry at all, Europe has been consuming natural gas from storage faster than at any point in recent record. From low storage, it's now retrieving gas from storage faster than at any point in the last. Like, if this winter continues to be cold and it's been a cold start, and it, 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 you just can't get, you, there's not enough gas for mm -hmm. Europe. The only way there would be enough gas is if Russia had extra gas got permission to use the pipelines that are the ones that insists on using, which is the Nord Stream 2 straight to Germany, and then starts putting out a ton of gas to Europe. And even then it would be really tight. So it's everything is progressing as badly as you could possibly imagine. There are a lot of administrative barriers between this reality and people starting to feel the crunch. Mm -hmm. Here's what I mean. In a country like um, Great Britain, although they have a free market and, and like electricity and all, all these electricity suppliers and everything, there are rules on how frequently the electricity suppliers can increase their rates and how much is the maximum amount that they can charge for electricity customers. Well, th that's called the rate cap and it can be adjusted every six months. We mm -hmm. are now coming up to that six month period. The government in the UK is behind the scenes desperately trying to figure out what to do about this the collapse of its energy retailers. The collapse of the energy retailers is, is continuing apace at the moment about, let's see, 4 million people or so have had their electricity retailer or gas retailer go to bankruptcy in the wow. UK, a population of about 65 million. So that's still small. But these are entities that mostly have contracts that are like medium term contracts. And when the new year hits, 
they're going to need to charge as the biggest increase they can possibly charge or die. And they may still die right? because there's nothing hinting at a relief on the natural gas prices over the next five, six months. And so what does this, what does this mean? You could say, oh, these electricity retailers collapsing, that's just a British problem. And plus, once they collapse, that means that their investors lose money and then all the customers will go on to some other program. But that money that was going to those retailers was supposed to feed back into which systems got invested in. But the number of the, the information that would have, the planning, the central authorities that would have needed to invest in the large energy projects of the last two decades to make Britain safe in the situation that we're seeing, it didn't happen. Got mm-hmm. divided up into too many hands. There was no central authority that could say it is not acceptable to lose our natural gas storage. Because Britain, like when I was describing to you natural gas storages that were filled or not, Britain went into this winter with a nearly completely filled storage facility, the set of storage facilities. It's just almost zero storage. Easy to fill if you, you know, it's easy to fill your gas tank if the only gas tank you have is a thimble, right? Mm-hmm. You could spit and you're halfway filled, right? It's, it, that's the situation that Britain has where they don't even have significant national gas storage. And it means that they are going to be hitting this moment in January or February when supplies start to get really tiny. And even if Britain's every natural gas and electricity retailer collapsed in Britain, even if it all collapsed and it was all nationalized and the state took control and finally stepped into the breach to lead, there wouldn't be natural gas in storage to release. There wouldn't be some special supplies hidden that they can use to get through a bad week or a bad storm. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen, except that it's going to be bad. It seems quite clear at this point that people in general, like the population, does not know what's coming. Mm-hmm. And the leaders are not going to panic or worry about it until the public or the media does. Right. I expected that it would just be quiet through COP26 and then it would be back on the table. But it's just not here. We're going to eat through Europe's gas storage. And then we're going to, I don't know, when it, it said something like, 70 or uh, 70% filled now, maybe less when it gets down to 30% or something. And in February, maybe, maybe it will be a continuing topic, maybe around January when lots of companies have to buy new contracts or raise their prices or are legally allowed to in the market system charge as much as they are losing at the moment, there will be enough people put into severe pain that they will ask their leaders, what is going on? Why am I paying so much for electricity and gas? Mm-hmm. And then I, I don't know what stage comes after that. Germany is not helping. Germany is getting rid of, if nothing changes over the next three, four weeks, and it's hard to see that happening, four gigawatts, which is relatively small. That's about, for your listeners, that's several million people's worth of electricity. Germans use more than Brits. In German consumption, that's about... 5% of natu- national electricity. Yeah, 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 yeah. About 5% of national electricity supply is going to be lost here in four weeks. Mm. The problem is when you get close to running out of things, prices go crazy. It's not the same as having to actually run out and then militarize everything and find sources and go to war or whatever, or cut off entire cities 
that, that happens when you actually start running out. When you get close to running out, you have extreme prices and you figure out who's worth having it or not, shall we say. Right. The, because Germany is connected to the European Gas and Electricity Network, Germany can outbid other countries and other suppliers. They can, they can basically bully around with their richness, their wealth, other countries that need the gas that's going to be burned in Germany because of that nuclear, or more likely, it's not going to be replaced by gas at all. It's just going to be replaced purely by coal. Right. So this is that why... Does not mean, that does not mean that Europe is, off, is, is going to be protected from Germany's shutdown. Why? Because the coal that Germany burns is the highest carbon-emitting coal in Europe. It's that's lignite right. coal. And when it burns this coal, it will need to bid up the price of the carbon permits that the poorer countries in Eastern and Southern Europe rely on as members of the EU and as part of the carbon trading scheme. If I had to guess, what will found to be easiest is to stop trading in carbon certificates and just either cancel it or provide subsidies for poorer countries or something. It's hard to imagine how countries around Europe will sit there and watch their houses get cold, their factories go idle as Germany outbids them for carbon permits by shutting down working nuclear plants that other countries would be happy to have the power from. Mm -hmm. But again, that's weird European politics and anything can happen between now and spring. Sure. I think part of the Germany being first at the trough, so to speak, because of their wealth when it comes to paying for expensive gas or otherwise is also why I keep having people show up in my mentions telling me that Germany has not suffered any unreliability on part of their renewables build out and that I'm actually wrong about everything. Well, look, um, I was wrong about renewables making Texas electricity expensive until it happened. Now mm -hmm. I'm being told that that's still not an example because Texas messed it up did their market wrong or there's corruption in the gas regulation. Billions of dollars are needing to be spent, paid for by somebody mm -hmm. that isn't already part of the billions that have been spent for Texas electricity. Mm -hmm. And that none of the expected additions in the Texas electricity grid that are going to be you know, paid for by investors at first, but need to be recouped by federal tax credits, by state, state electricity revenue, None of that spending is going to fix the problem of the big outages, but that's Texas. I have to admit that Germany has done a tremendous job keeping its fossil fuels open. Mm -hmm. It tells other countries, like at the, climate, at the climate conference, they go around helping other countries, especially in Africa, announce that they're getting rid of their own coal plants that Germany itself cannot get rid of. Amazing. So this was, the, this was the, a lot of the theme of my speech in Africa. When I was in Ghana, I was speaking to young nuclear and young energy professionals, and I was saying, do not look to the developed world as a guide or an, as an example, because they are telling you and they, were, they are telling you things to do that they themselves cannot achieve. Mm -hmm. And no offense, but if Germany, with its wealth, its head start, it's industrial economy. If Germany cannot get it done, you will not get it done. Yeah. Germany has everything going for it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Even they, they have an advantage that Texas doesn't have. And then a lot of the renewables are low capacity factor. So there wasn't, it, it, it reduces the amount of revenue taken from other types of power plants. I know that's a weird way to put it, but like when a solar in Germany barely pops on. So it, 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 it's very difficult for solar in Germany to bankrupt a coal plant, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Solar in Texas will definitely be able to bankrupt a bunch of power plants. So it's, it's a different situation in Texas than in Germany. But in Germany, even coal plants with very low service times are being kept alive by some magic power. I don't know what it is. I can't imagine how the economics work, but it does. Germany is an amazing place. A lot of things <laughs> just work. Really, Emmett, the, one of the things I celebrate when I go to Germany is that every single doorknob, every door handle and latch mm-hmm. sounds beautiful. It's like a chunk. It makes a strong, clunky, mm-hmm. reliable sound. I, I was in a hotel in Berlin after, you know, for our, for our nuclear event. And I would just sometimes sit there at a doorway in the hotel and open it and let it close and open it and let it close and open it and let it close. Just because again, German door handles are engineering marbles. They're I'm sure marbles. your neighbors loved you. I, but you know, these are quiet doors. They didn't squeak. They didn't make noise. Uh, they were and perfect. They, they had beautiful soft closures and they, you know, the door would close and go chink and you'd you'd hear the latch go it was just glorious it's the type of society that if they did not have this mania about nuclear could honestly be helping a lot of the world Hmm. you know germany was exporting nuclear plants did you know that germany was exporting nuclear plants before the big turn came Hmm. yeah they just off the top of my head they're building nuclear plants in brazil and in iran Wow. Well, that's a good way to transition to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is how, if at all, this crunch is changing the global perspective on nuclear. It's hard to tell if I'm just uh, in a Twitter bubble or not, but I've certainly been seeing articles, even in the US, where some states are rolling back their nuclear bans and things like that. What, what have you seen? What have you heard? Nuclear is winning. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to win fast enough to make a difference on climate change. doesn't mean it's going to win fast enough to save us all, but it might. It's possible now. It doesn't mean it's winning fast enough that we are going to be able to get nuclear to Africa and, and alleviate the worst effects of a sort of global turn back of capital that used to go to the developing world. I don't I sure hope so. I'm going to fight for it. But mm-hmm. it's clear that nuclear in the developed world is having a moment. And this time it feels like keeps. We may have talked about it before, maybe not, maybe not on this podcast, but the fundamental root of anti-nuclear hysteria is Malthusianism on one side and fears of death from nuclear war on the other. Those are the two big fears. Mm-hmm. On one hand, The Malthusianism acts when nuclear is doing really well. That was the original source of the anti-nuclear movement. Nuclear is doing really well. We've got to stop it because it's electricity and electricity is bad. I I enjoy shocking people who, you know, know about or work at the Rocky Mountain Institute. And I have to remind them that Rocky Mountain Institute was one of the original groups promoting the electricity is bad and wasteful message. But that was just backed in from the fact that nuclear was doing really well at the time was apparently going to take over 
And they had to have a message that worked for fighting back against electricity spreading mm-hmm. because it was spreading with nuclear. And that was it. Well, so that's the Malthusianism when, when nuclear is doing really well. Nuclear has not been doing really well. It has not been receiving the bulk of the new energy investment, to say the very least. And that's fantastic working plants have been shutting down through politics and dirty tricks, right? So we're in the second stage where nuclear is not doing well. And we're going up against that second fear, which is the fear of nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And honestly, people just aren't that scared of that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right or wrong, they're just not that scared. The generation that's most scared of nuclear war is losing some of their grips on the reins of power, their influence over organizations. They still have the cash. That's the big thing. They still have the money, but they don't have the enthusiasm. And now, crucially, and this is what I think you're seeing, they do not have the moral, the moral pedestal to stand mm-hmm. on anymore. Somebody gets up and says nuclear is bad because it's going to end the whole world. Well, look, we already have people saying that what's going to end the whole world is climate change is very hard for an explicitly anti-nuclear view to be heard when those views are fundamentally based on fears of death from nuclear violence. Even nuclear waste fears are fears of nuclear war. Nuclear reactor meltdowns are turned into ersatz nuclear wars in people's heads. And the people who are activated by those fears are fading out. There will always be leaders in every generation who have a hold up on nuclear, have a hang up where they just can't get over the creeping feeling that something bad is going to end everybody. And they're going to target nuclear because of those fears. We're never going to get rid of the people who have commercial interests against nuclear. That's mm-hmm. always going to happen. You know, the, the wind and solar industry have this small problem that I know we have lots of folks that say, don't pit them against each other. But wind and solar industry has every opportunity they could ever want to reach out to nuclear. They're not going to do it. It's only yeah. the opposite that happens. They're not going to do it because if you have nuclear going well, you don't need wind and solar. You don't mm-hmm. need to spread it out across the land. You don't need to... Um, convert a local energy economy like at a coal plant to a rentier capitalist landowning, you know, economy, which is without any local jobs. Like that's the nature wind and solar. And it's not popular once people get a taste of it. So wind and solar industry is not going to gang up on carbon industry with nuclear. If anything, it's the opposite. But that's just commercial fights. Those are always going to be there. It's like tigers hunting for meat. We can't say anything about it. The ideologues, though, are losing their grip on the narrative. Mm -hmm. I have have an interesting day coming up tomorrow where I'm going to be on a TV show going up against some of the most famous anti-nuclear ideologues in Europe. And I don't know how the host is going to treat he said, she said on this sort of situation. I do know this, though. Those fighting for nuclear tend to be the more energetic, the more (laughs) aggressive, the more optimistic, the more (laughs) indefatigable. We are the ones with the energy and the wind at our backs. And the people who are truly anti-nuclear are fading away. And they, although they outspend us by an immense amount, it's very hard to buy the religious fervor that those of us who are nuclear barbarians have. So I agree. Nuclear is having a moment. Countries around the developing world are demanding dams and they're demanding nuclear. 
At the moment, the West isn't really in a position to step up and provide nuclear, but it's getting there. At least it wants to get there. But if countries go to China and Russia, they can they can get signed up for a nuclear program like this. Mm-hmm. And more and more are doing that all the time. Yeah. I mean, it is an incredible turning of the tide. I think it's really just beginning and I don't think it will just be a linear process because pretty much nothing is, especially things like this, but it's hopeful to see that it is easier to even make the case. And as you said, you'll always have people who think society is going to end. I mean, I do think we have sort of an entrenched culture of fear. And I actually think that the new climate activism, and I'll be writing a piece about this soon, has less to do with fear of the bomb or Malthusianism and more to do with a sort of Schopenhauerian anti-humanism just at base, because it is against impact on the environment or energy at all. And the only way you can be alive is if you are consuming and using energy. That's true for any organism. So I'm, you're the you're the you're the cultural diagnostician that everyone goes to. So I'm so just we'll see. And, we'll uh, we'll see if people that, are so. convinced by that argument. But that's only to say that I don't. Even if it is easy to win people over with fear, which it is historically, it is. I don't think that can be maintained at the threshold it is at now for an extended period of time. I think people just start to tune out. And I'm actually seeing, surprisingly, more and more people say, like, I think climate change is real and I don't care. (laughs) I don't care about it. I don't want to hear about it. Everybody's been telling me the world has been ending since I was in sixth grade. It hasn't ended yet. I don't care anymore. So here's the thing, Emmett. I still think it's a dangerous thing to experiment with the atmospheric composition of the earth. I just find that most of the people I meet in the climate change space are enemies of the key technology that is proven to keep societies healthy and wealthy Mm -hmm. while reducing carbon emissions. I think we could, I think I could get along really well with people who don't care about climate change, but do care about a rich, secure society because we can just Mm -hmm. build nuclear, you know, almost everyone I met in the fossil fuel industry has said, I don't have any problem with nuclear. And I'm like, okay, well, first convince your bosses, but second, (laughs) yeah, if you're in the business of providing energy, Mm -hmm. you're typically not picky. You just insist that it provide for a career that can feed a family. That's all. It's, Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not that much. And really that may be what we find. A lot of oil and gas people take one sniff of what it's like to go into renewables and they think, okay, unless I'm like a door-to-door battery or an academic, I don't see how I'm going to like have a stable career built around a house. And maybe that's not possible, you know, like it should tell you something that so many clean energy jobs are to be had in San Francisco or New York, because those are not places where you have clean energy. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's almost the opposite. It's where you need to pipe an emergency diesel to keep your and gas to keep your cities alive. These are very compact, very rich, very elite places. If you have energy based in a place like that, it's not guaranteed to be, but is likely to be an elitist project. Now, yeah. am I saying that elites are fundamentally bound to make bad energy decisions or that no. you don't need really big leadership? No, but in the end, it matters whether you're right or wrong about what you choose as an elite. Mm-hmm. And in the case of people that are choosing against nuclear, they're fundamentally wrong. They're the wrong elite. 
they're the wrong ones. Right, exactly. So may reality continue to convince us, hopefully not too painfully, to make better decisions in the long Look, the, the pain is, Emmett, the pain is built in. Here's mm-hmm. what I mean. Regardless of what happens with gas in Europe, we've already seen a huge rise in fertilizer prices. What yeah. this means is that at this point, it's guaranteed that agriculture will be impacted on a global scale by the shortages we've already had, by the, by the expected shortages that are coming. It could get worse, but what we know is that far commodity prices are going to go up. And in this case, it's not even clear that that's gonna necessarily go back to farmers because they're, they're, the price is going up for their implements. For them to grow enough food, they have to spend a lot more. That's money that's passed along to parties that aren't even the farmer. I don't know where this goes. I don't yeah. think anybody does. We no. haven't seen anything quite like it. No, this is why I've been calling it the Black Cascade. It is opaque, it is interconnected, and it is difficult. Well, um, on that cheery note, Black, Black Cascade is coming for us for Christmas or this year or the next. I wonder if there's any good news or good feeling we could end with. I, we did mention the good news about nuclear having a moment, but let me just say that as ridiculous as I think many ESG, that's environmental, social, and governance criteria for investing Mm -hmm. schemes and regimes are, it seems increasingly likely likely that France and its allies are going to win the war they've been fighting against Germans and Austrians and and Danes and Mm -hmm. Portuguese in the back halls and the smoky-filled chambers of the EU to get nuclear classified as green. On one hand, this may blow up green investing, in which case it's fine. We'll just do investing the way it always has been done without the green label. Mm-hmm. If the green label does include nuclear and it does continue, however, this potentially is a way for the barbarians to break down the gates, to liberate the, to, to liberate the occupied countries, to make it possible for large institutions who are stewarding large amounts of retiree funding in other mm-hmm. words our weird system for feeding old people when they're when they're no longer working mm-hmm. that money they may be able to go into the machines that keep them alive in actuality the nuclear plants mm-hmm. right that would be a beautiful connection to make we're still waiting for the announcement from brussels to see whether nuclear is actually included and how yes germany will probably force natural gas to be included Just in the last week, we've seen very strong statements from around Europe, defense ministers saying, if natural gas is not included as green, there will be serious shortages and deaths in Europe. They're not, they're not wrong at this point. That's what you get for having the wrong energy policies and not building substitutes that are carbon free, Mm -hmm. but it does make a complete mockery of what the ESG system is supposed to be, but at least the nuclear will be on the inside. That matters. It does seem fairly certain at this point it's going to happen. And I thought that 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 good news is worth passing along. That at minimum, it's a massive troll. At maximum, it does lead us to a better better future. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And ultimately, I am always hopeful, as difficult as things are, because I believe in human ingenuity 
and I believe in our ability to figure out difficult situations as we have always tried to do to the best of our ability. So on that Image, note, is Black Cascade? Wait, 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 wait! Is Black Cascade already the name of a metal band? I don't know. I actually I didn't check. Find a way to get Black Cascade. If it's gonna happen, it might as well be a band. Yeah, I should I should make fake band T-shirts and and sell them to to Nuclear Barbarians listeners. So I don't know. People look out. I might be dropping a merch store this winter to commemorate the difficulties ahead. But as I was saying, I do believe there are plenty of reasons to be hopeful. It is in the stories you reported uh, to us of young people taking ownership of this future, defending nuclear as a technology, and the fact that the bill is coming due on a lot of poor investments and people are waking up. And that is really all you can ask for in terms of an opportunity to build a better tomorrow. I suppose so. Well, good to be here with you. Yeah, great having you. So, listeners, stay safe, stay sharp, and stay radiant.